We on? Okay, there we go. All right, you in the far room, hopefully you can hear now. Hey, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Um, and uh, I was going to give you the page number in the Pew Bible, but then Russ reminded me, but we're not supposed to have Pew Bibles right now because people touch them. So, the lesson that I had completely missed is you need to bring your 66 shooters every week until this is over. All right. And while you're doing that, I want to ask the question, has anybody noticed anything different? Windows. So, thank Larry and, and Mark and Willie and everybody else. Isn't this... It's kind of illuminating, isn't it? It's much, much better. Okay. Hey, uh, today we're going to start with some biblical passages that are some of the most offensive, unacceptable words that can be uttered in our culture today. I'm going to try to explain what these passages mean. We're going to try to explain why these passages are so offensive today. And we're going to try to learn why it's important for the saints of the church to be in unity and better examples of, this pa- of these passages to the culture. Some will steer completely clear of this subject, but be- because the Bible says these things and we exist within this culture, we cannot avoid this topic. So I think it'll be helpful if you follow along in your own Bible because uh, a couple of them are fairly long. Uh, and then the last one is just one verse. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Next one is 1 Peter 3. And again, this is a little longer, not quite as long. And starting there at the beginning, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Finally, the last one is in is, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would help Help us all to hear with hearts open to your truth. Lord, we know that this is countercultural. We know that this is offensive, and it must be presented in a way that is not just gentle, but authentic. It requires the church to live it out. It requires me to live it out, and I know that I have failed. Father, be with us today and open our hearts to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You know, last month we touched upon Ephesians 5 in the context of marriage as the sole domain for sex in our series about the church and culture. And I said we would return to this and its application within our culture. So if you're serious about God's Word and you consider these three passages that I just read, you really cannot ignore this issue, even though many Christians do. Um, This is one of the areas of division within the culture as well as within the church. And we're studying in this series these divisions so that we will hopefully listen to one another because we all have things to learn from one another, forge a consensus based upon God's word, and get our act together as a church in order to share that truth consistently with the world. Many, including some within the church, take offense or try to explain these passages out of existence. But if you take those words in context and honestly consider the portrait of marriage marriage presented from the perspective of the gospel, you should come to a very different conclusion. So what does it mean when the Bible says God is, or Christ is the head of the church? The Bible answer to that is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her and cleanse her by the word. In other words, the true portrait painted by Paul here is that of a husband, Jesus, who gives his all for the good of his bride, the church, even to the point of giving up all of his rights and laying down his life for the sake of that bride. Therefore, as we mentioned last month, God designed marriage so that the believing husband's love for his wife, laying down his life for her good, her beauty, her splendor, would be a portrait, a reminder of Christ's love for his bride, the people of the church. However, when we look at marriages today, that's not really what we see very often. So let's be real, okay? God is perfect in all things and in all ways. And we are not his personification. That's Jesus. We are his image. Similarly, Christ is the perfect husband to his bride, but we are clearly not to ours, and we will never be. Because of our fallen nature, we've got two choices as biblical Christians. We can either throw out that model as unworkable, or we can learn, teach, and seek the Holy Spirit in following the example of Christ's love for his bride. So which will it be, folks? The word of God is clear. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should submit in everything to their husbands. We're going to talk about what everything means later. But for now, let's just say that the fact that the Bible tells wives to submit to imperfect husbands makes it really hard to accept within our culture. Now, among many, the word submission and headship elicit thoughts of inferiority and superiority, of subordination and domination. Teaching this scripture or espousing this view can result in ridicule, reproof, or even outright rejection. However, if you take the time to examine what is actually meant by these terms in scripture, you will see that interpretation of domination does not even come close. It's an adulteration fostered by Satan himself to divide our unity, our oneness between wives and husbands, as well as between members of the body. So I've got some points on the handout. I hope you'll pay attention because, uh, especially later, it's going to be really important. But first point I want to make here is that God makes it clear that men and women, husbands and wives, are, are equal in God's view. And when Paul states in Galatians 3, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, He's clearly not saying that there's no difference between men and women, but rather they are equal in worth, value, and dignity before God. Biblical submission entails a desire to yield to one another out of love and respect. Second point is that submission is a part of all relationships, pretty much necessary. Christian married couples are told to train their children to submit to them for their own good. They're to love, protect, nurture, and provide them for them. And regardless of their 
actual level of submission, the fact of any submission, in no way implies that the children are inferior to the parents. We believe they are of equal value and dignity from the point of conception. Jesus rebuked his disciples when the, his disciples tried to keep the children from, away from him. Now, one might point out or object, you know, well, sure, children need to submit because they're children. Okay? Wives are adults with equal standing. Why can't all decisions be equal? You know, like 50-50. Well, okay, let's think here. Purely logical and practical level. Consider a couple of folks, you know, a couple of guys, a couple of women, put their arms around each other, and they form a 50-50 partnership. Decisions are, they have equal authority in their decisions. And I would say this, it works as long as it works, okay? In other words, as long as they both agree. However, if they disagree and neither is willing to submit to the other, the partnership ends. It fails. Now, marriage is supposed to last as long as they both shall live. So if there's disagreement within the marriage, someone of necessity submits to the other for the marriage to continue. This does not mean that a biblical, a biblical uh, a husband in a biblical marriage gets to conclude that he gets his way about everything, regardless of the person with whom he has made, made, been made one for life, if they disagree. On a, quite the contrary, men are much wiser to listen to the counsel of their wife as she is more sensitive to spiritual matters and often sees things. He does not because she will usually have different gifts and strengths. But nonetheless, it is the husband who is responsible to God for the decision, even if he follows the counsel of his wife and she's wrong. Remember the first sin. Both were punished, but he was given the greater punishment, even though she was the one deceived because he passively went along and then tried to deflect responsibility. Another objection. So if men and women are truly equal, why can't we just turn it around and make the husband submit to the wife? Well, the simple answer is because God's word says the wife is to submit to her husband. The husband is the head of the wife. Even though some husbands are too lazy or passive to lead, we should not reverse God's order. God put greater responsibility of leadership on the man. Now, God could have created us to mate and spawn offspring indiscriminately, but he didn't. Instead, he gave us a pattern, an order that he says works best. There are deviations from that pattern, polygamy, fornication, any sexual morality. They, those are all sin, and they reflect the presumptuous and human-centered belief that the will and plan of a transcendent creator is subject to the judgment of his creatures. Therefore, Unless we really want to make our judgment superior over God's, make ourselves little gods, shouldn't we follow God's command rather than just put our own judgment above his? God does give us free will to turn our backs on him, but if we do so, it is at our peril. Thirdly, submission is a concept that extends beyond human relationships extends to all relationships. This is the key to understanding how equality can coexist with submission. You see this in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal in, in uh, divinity. Each fully God, all equally worthy of our worship. None superior to the other. However, the Son submits to the Father, even though he's equal. When the disciples tried to get him to eat, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's in John 4. And when Jesus was in the garden agonizing over his impending torture and death, his full humanity was disclosed in his full divinity when he pleaded, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
was his father, because of Jesus' submission, coercive, domineering. Consider that. In John 5, Jesus declared himself to be equal with God and had authority to act and judge. However, he derived his authority from the Father. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. So this is an important concept to understand. Essential equality or equality in essence and functional submission. Those two can and do go together. Later in John 14, Jesus says that the Father is greater than I. He's not contradicting himself here. He's not saying that he's not equal to God in essence, but rather that he submits to his Father in function. So, got a two-part question here. First, if it's true that Jesus, the creator of the universe, is the example of leadership who, though equal with the Father, submitted to the will of the Father. And secondly, if God's word expressly states that marriage is to be a mirror of the relationship between the submissive church and Christ, how can we legalistically draw a line and say that headship and willing submission does not apply to our relationships as husband and wife? The next point is probably the most important here. The reason we uphold biblical marriage. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And here he bears his heart about those who will carry his word forward after his ascension. He tells the Father that the world hates his disciples because it hates him. And then he says, starting in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The concept of which I'm referring to here involves unity or oneness leading to the gospel. Our oneness with God and within the body is to be a light to point to the lost, to Christ, as in John 17 continues, so that the world may know that you, Father, sent me the Son and love them even as I, as you loved me. So if the world sees Christian marriages as examples of loving submission by and oneness of co-equal wives with husbands who likewise submit to Jesus, it will be will we more clearly see and understand how the church submits to its husband, Jesus, who is co-equal with, yet submissive to his father. Biblical ser servant leadership and loving submission are gospel imperatives. This is the order given by God to make our marriages living epistles or examples to the world of God's love for that very same world. Biblical marriage is part of the gospel. It is that important. Finally, I want to say something about the durability of marriage. Now think about this. If biblical marriage was just a cultural phenomenon, why did it not die out or evolve into something completely different long, long ago? It's always had its detractors and abuses and corruptions not only that, it's demanding on its participants. It requires each of us to give up our rights and forsake all others, be devoted to another for life, even when that person doesn't please us. If any cultural practice could be jettisoned due to inconvenience, it would be the confinement and the commitment of biblical marriage. Yet it started in the beginning, Genesis 2, 
After the fall, it didn't take long to be corrupted by polygamy and adultery and sodomy. Yet it continued through the New Testament, when, as Jesus affirmed, even with many of the same corruptions. And it survives to today. It will reach its final consummation when Christ is completely united with his bride, as recorded by John in Revelation 19. So no matter what the courts or the culture say, biblical marriage has always been, and it will always be. So that tells us something about God's plan. Now I want to get into the issue of why does our culture react so negatively to biblical marriage, as particularly headship and submission. Of course, the standard evangelical answer to that point is, well, the prince of this world is Satan. Well, yeah. The world is going downhill fast because of sin. Uh, it's the nature of mankind to rebel against God. That's all true. There might be other contributing factors like hypersensitivity and political correctness and some forms of feminism. There are plenty of things to point to on the other side. However, for our purposes today, I want to focus on the aspect over the things over which we have some control, some personal responsibility, the beam in our own eye and the eye of the church. This is what younger Christians are pointing out to us older folks. They're telling us that the world is not seeing Christ-like headship and submission within the church. Instead, the world sees abuse of authority by husbands, infidelity, divorce, addiction to porn, sexual abuse by clergy, and other abuses of God-given roles. In short, the world hears what the church says, then watches what many within the church do, then it shrugs its shoulders and says, what's the difference other than hypocrisy? The world and the younger generation sees men who claim to represent Christ on earth tell women they are to submit to their husband in everything as totalitarian leaders. Well, Kent, isn't that what Paul said? Submit to your husband in everything? Well, let's test the limits of what I would call a wooden, isolated, and absolutist interpretation of what Paul said. Hypothetical. You have a daughter. She gets married. And you're delighted. She starts having children early and often. Okay? And you're delighted to have grandchildren. One day she comes to you and she says, Dad, Mom, she's sobbing. She said, I've always been taught by you that I should submit to my husband in everything, and I have. I swear I've done my best. But I just told him that I'm expecting again, and he got angry. He said he can't do more than his two jobs right now, and I must terminate the pregnancy. What do I do? Everything? Seriously? Even when it violates God's authority and the very principle of authority? See, the problem here is that, yes, the husband is the head of the wife, but Christ is the head of every man. He is a higher authority. And when the husband commands his wife to do something contrary to God's word or God's law, he is abusing his authority. Now, I'll concede that hypo is extreme and rare, but it has happened. We are listening and trying to discern the command in context of the whole counsel of God and determine its limits. We get all mixed up on this concept of biblical authority. I think that's why there is such a reaction by the culture to the concept of headship. When people hear of any husband who is uh, abusive or controlling of his wife, if there's any tie to religion, you know that it's that concept of headship and the Bible that takes the hit. They're going to blame that on the Christian Bible. i got something to say here that I think is key. If you get nothing else out of this, please remember this on both sides. Headship is not 
the power to control a wife. It is the responsibility to die for her. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I know we're rarely called upon to die for another, but this at least means that a husband as the, as the head is to die to self, give up his rights, if necessary, to care for, protect, and love a wife. At the same time, as the head, he is to lead gently and wisely. He is responsible for the direction and the outcomes of the decisions made for the household. This relationship is not transactional. It is relational. By that I mean neither the husband nor the wife can come up with a checklist of duties of the marriage and check them off and then demand a return on their investment. They must both give of themselves completely in loving sacrifice to the other with whom both are one. This is akin to the authority and leadership of an elder in the church. Elders are really under shepherds. That is, they're shepherds under the direction of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us that an elder is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, leading by example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherds have huge responsibilities. A husband has a unique responsibility that with his wife, they are one. And because they're one, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So, Christ is the example of leadership for both. Just as elders are to lead, love, and care for, and protect the flock, husbands are to lead, love, and care for, and protect their wives and children, both just as Christ does the church. Now, most men, I think, get the loving, caring for, and protecting their wives, at least in concept, if not in practice. However, just as elders are to disciple the church in much the same way, Paul provides an example of Christ cleansing his bride by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Then Paul states, in the same way husbands love your wives. Now this implies to me that husbands are to take spiritual leadership within the home to lead and protect the wife and children from spiritual attack. And this may be the biggest weakness of Christian husbands in our culture. This neglect on the part of many husbands is one of the reasons that wives will sometimes find it hard to respect them because she has to step in and become the spiritual leader. How do men come to the conclusion that this headship thing, which they gladly take on from God, does not include the most important part of our existence, our relationship with God? We've got to take this seriously because we as husbands are representing Christ to the watching world in the way that we lead and love our wives. If we're callous or harsh, Christ will appear cruel to the world. If we're unfaithful or we leave our wives, we demonstrate that Christ has no commitment to, no oneness with the church. Wives have the same obligation before God. Wives are not in competitive but a complementary relationship with their husband. They form one with him. The word says that wives represent to the world the willing submission of the church to Christ. A wife who does not respect her husband simply says to the world that the church doesn't respect Christ. A wife that does not follow her husband is saying to the world, it's not important to follow Christ. At the end of Ephesians 5, Paul states that each husband is to love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respect her husband. While both should love and respect the other, this verse points out that wives have a special need to be loved. Husbands have a special need to be respected. 
Now, one could say that a wife, his wife, has not earned his love, perhaps because she nags, or she's a spendthrift, or she's not as affectionate as he desires. Same token, a wife could say that her husband has not earned her respect because he won't help out enough with the work around the home, or he's not being the spiritual leader that he ought to be. Yeah, either could say that, and those are all areas of concern and areas to look at and to improve in. But let me ask, does the Word of God say, love your wife, respect your husband, if the partner earns it? Uh-uh. Rather, what we see is mutuality and, again, oneness. That is, the attitude that we take into and carry forward in mutual love and respect. As fallen beings, we will fall, some or at many points in marriage, but our focus should always be on loving and respecting our mate, working through our blind spots, our problems, our weaknesses, our failures, our insensitivities. And when these problems arise... Because we know, as biblical Christians, how important this relationship is, how foundational it is, our marriage witness is we do whatever we have to do to get back to or get to, for the first time, God's best. The passage in Ephesians 5 about husband is and wise is preceded by a more general passage about the relationship between believers. And the passage ends with the command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ just before the command for wives to submit to their husbands. Now, do either of these cancel out the other? No, Scripture never contradicts itself. Instead, it helps us understand that the specific command of submission by a wife is always in the context of mutual love and respect, submission, to one another. Does mar- married life inevitably involves some disagreement, usually over minor amoral things, no right or wrong. As a practical tip, uh, marriage experts Les and Leslie Parrott recommend that instead of battling each disagreement out, you simply consider honestly among yourselves, how important is this decision if you disagree? So, for an example, let's say uh, the wife wants to uh, reorganize her pantry and uh, she says, that's, for me, that's an eight. And the husband just wants a convenient place where he can grab his favorite chips. But that's a three. You know, it kind of makes sense for John to defer to Mary. Okay? Just a little tip there. <laughs> I had kind of an example like this in my own life. Uh, when we moved into our, our prison house 33 or 4 years ago, uh, it was kind of decorated like in the 60s, you know. This was the 80s, and, and so I was busy, and Chrissy just kind of took over, and she did a lot of the remodeling. And uh, fine, you know, fine, that's great. And, I, and what we ended up with was uh, a, a nice-looking uh, master bedroom with a flowered border at the top, okay? And I lived with it. But 20 years later, when we did another remodel, I said, honey, you know, the flowers kind of suck the testosterone out of me. <laughs> could, we, could we go with something a little less feminine this time? And she acquiesced, okay? And when, when we resolve conflicts like this, it honors the general principle of submitting one to another. Now, not all decisions are that inconsequential, okay? Uh, when they're major, maybe like child-rearing or where to fellowship, guys, if it's a 10 to her, you had better listen and consider her reasons. Women tend to have more sensitive spiritual antenna than men, and their counsel is vital to a healthy marriage. Yes, you're responsible for the decision and the consequences of that decision, so you'll need to make it. But whether you reverse course or change course or proceed with your choice, By taking her view into account, you honor the command to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Okay. The battle of the sexes has been going on for a long time, since the garden. Okay, or since, yeah. 
But I want to move on now to a more recent battle involving the sexes, which has risen all within the church. I want to say, as a preface here, it's important to pay attention to the words that I use, or you might get emotional and miss what I'm trying to say. So the first question is, may women teach within the confines of the church? And the answer to that specific question is an unqualified yes. Okay, think about this. Most of our primary Sunday school teachers are women. Sometimes some valiant men step in and help out. We owe much of our character and our preparation for life to moms and other women. And in fact, in Scripture, women are commanded to teach within the church. Titus 2 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Okay, but it's also important to take into context what's being said there. This is in the church, but verse, the very next verse says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older is a relative term, okay? It certainly implies maturity and wisdom beyond that of the younger or less experienced woman. So it could be a 70-year-old uh, teaching a middle-aged woman or a mature 20-something teaching a 16-year-old. Just like with men, age does not guarantee wisdom and maturity. Now we get to the specific question being raised by some within the church today. Okay? Can women teach the church, including men, from the pulpit? Okay? Now, again, please listen. My answer to that question is, well, yes, it appears that some women can. If you've not noticed, there are now a fair number of Christian radio programs featuring women teachers. And I've listened to some of them or parts of some of them, and frankly, I don't find a lot that I disagree with. Clearly, some women can teach the Word of God. However, the real question for us is not whether women can teach God's word, rather the question is to be asked is, may they teach the word of God in church to all? May is very different than can, okay? Uh, your mother may have taught you a grammatical lesson when you said, can I go out and play? And she said, well, you can, you might get a swat, you can, but you may not. You don't have my permission to go out because you haven't finished your chores, okay? So we all kind of have had that experience. We understand the difference. Some within the church today are saying it is clear that because women can, they have the ability to teach God's word, there is no reason in their opinion to not allow that. After all, they point at many large church groups, whole denominations, mainline, charismatic, Pentecostal, that have ordained women teachers and pastors to lead congregations. Not, not just that. They point at polls and surveys. There's a link on your uh, handout there to a survey published by Christianity Today on July the 30th of this year, just a little over a month ago. And in that survey, it found that over 70%, over 70% of women and 70% of men believe, no, no, sorry, evangelicals, men and women believe women ought to be teaching from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Hey, listen, the times, they're not a changing. They have changed. Let me ask a question, though. Is, the, is this question answered by my opinion or your opinion or the culture or the vast majority of evangelicals? What I'm going to suggest, no, what I am teaching today is that we need to look to God's word for our answers, objective truth rather than opinion. God's word says in 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man 
Rather, she is to remain silent or quiet. So the issue is not the ability of women to teach. Rather, it is the authority of the, of the teacher over those being taught. The order of male servant leadership was from the beginning and has been the understanding of the church for the past two millennia. And it is part of the witness of God's order to the world, which is now being challenged. You know, when we have visitors, I don't know if there's any here today, but they may come back, they may not, and it's for a variety of reasons. But if somebody does come back, it's reasonable to assume that they feel comfortable with what happens here, including the teaching. In other words, they accept and submit to the teaching and the authority of the teachers to speak into their lives and give direction on how to live it as a Christ follower. Teaching is an act of authority. It's one of the qualifications that distinguishes an elder from a deacon who must be equally qualified as elders in all other respects. Teaching is one of the duties of shepherds and often involves interpretation, application, counsel, correction, and sometimes even rebuke. And to be part of a church body is to submit to the authority of the leaders, not just in operational details, but mostly in teaching. Disciples, students, and church members voluntarily submit to the teaching of the elders or the pastor by coming back for more. And at Lion and Lamb, they may take the additional step of demonstrating even more trust in that leadership by committing to the body through covenant membership. This submission does not mean that teachers are always right. Teachers are imperfect communicators. We can make mistakes and misstatements. But multiple leaders or elders or pastors help protect against those problems. If a teacher abuses his authority, it must be corrected by fellow co-equal leaders. However, please don't try to understand this. Abuse by a leader or teacher does not cancel the principle of authority any more than abuse by a policeman cancels the important authority of, of law enforcement to protect our community. And the same applies to the authority of husbands in the home. All abuse is wrong and should be corrected. However, the abuse of authority in a specific case does not cancel out the overall principle in all cases. That principle of authority is part of God's plan for order in the home and church, and it is built upon mutual love and respect, including submission to one another. Now, I don't know how much of an issue uh, women teaching here is in this church, but it currently really is within the church at large. Because of time limitations, I've listed the formal lion and lamb positions on your handout, and there's more information there in the form of links, okay? And I figured this out. If you go on the website and you download a particular sermon and it's got links in it, you can, I'm sorry, you, you download the, the handout, what you're looking at, hopefully, and you can actually click on that link and it'll take you to that source or copy and paste it. So you can look this stuff up. You don't have to try to type out all those, all those links. So I encourage you to do that. One of those links is to an article written by Mary Cassian, a professor of women's studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mary says that she has the gift of teaching, and I don't doubt that. She tries to navigate the principle of authority as we've discussed today, and she points out that there are numerous different scenarios of women teaching that may or may not violate the principle. So she says, is it okay for a woman to teach a youth Sunday school at a women's conference, a seminary course, a couple's retreat, or on the radio. So she makes an analogy. She's not equating the two, but she's making the analogy between this issue and premarital relationships. The Bible provides a command that fornication or premarital sex is sin. However, the Bible does not give us a list prescribing all the other interactions that may occur before marriage. So, question would be, a uh, couple uh, are serious about each other, maybe they're engaged, is it okay to kiss? The Bible doesn't tell us that, does it? And some have concluded they don't want to kiss until their wedding day, which is wonderful. 
but others don't come to that conviction. But if it is okay to kiss, is it just a peck or is it passionately? Okay? We have guidance because the Bible doesn't have a rule, but it has a principle. It's the principle of purity. We're told to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, 2 Timothy 2.22. Now, Mary then acknowledges that the command in Scripture is that women are not to teach and exercise authority over men in the church. So she would not teach Bible doctrine to a mixed audience in a church or act in the, in the same way that a pastor would. However, in other circumstances, she would look to the principle of authority. And if her teaching did not involve taking authority over men, such as she, she thinks as like at a couple's retreat or on the radio where men are free to listen and consider or not, she's not taking authority over them, she would be inclined to go ahead. Now, while I don't know that I would agree with every decision that she makes, I think she's helpful in, under, in helping us understand that we look at the command first and then we consider the principle for application, in this case, the principle of authority. Reality is that men learn from women all the time. And husbands, if you don't admit that, you've got problems. Okay? Wives have tremendous influence over husbands, and that influence comes from the heart and the spirit of the wife. Peter recognizes this at the beginning of his passage on submission. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What was helpful for me was uh, John Piper's explanation of this issue. Uh, where he concisely says that the difference between teaching that is prohibited to women, 1 Timothy 2, and the teaching that is not prohibited, Titus 2, is the personal dynamic of how women and men are supposed to relate to each other. More specifically, the decisive operative factor is whether the activity involves the personal authoritative leadership toward men. Piper continues, it seems to me that as men and women relate to each other in the church, men are to lead just as a husband leads at home. In all aspects of the church's life, there is to be a spirit, an ethos, a culture of humble, servant-hearted leadership and glad, thoughtful, willing support of that leadership. In other words, this is not some tug-of-war battle of the sexes that men get to lead because men get to win because of misogynistic interpretation of the Bible. Rather, it is a consistent principle of servant leadership and willing, loving submission derived, given example by the submission to the Father by the co-equal Jesus who was one with the Father, mirrored and exemplified to the world by the loving and willing submission between co-equal husbands and wives as one. Within the church, uh, shepherd leaders are co-equal in essence with all sheep, male and female, in one body. Yet the principle of male authority and teaching follows the same principle of functional leadership and submission in the husband and wife relationship, in the Christ and body relationship, in the father and son relationship within the Godhead. All those relationships form a oneness. Okay. I hope that makes some sense. If not, Larry has uh, asked that I be available for questions after the service. And I said, well, if, if the other elders will join me, and I notice that Larry's not here today. <laughs> so, at least I will be up here after the service if you have a question. And if, you, if you'd rather email me, that's fine, too. I think my email is probably on the handout or it's, it's on, on Zoom or not Zoom. Breeze. Okay. As the worship team comes up, uh, I want to have us all stand up and recite the description of that final marriage ceremony. 
of Christ in the church. Hope you can all see this. Okay, there we go. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God, Lord God. Lord, I pray that these words would not be too confused by my fumbling. I pray, Lord, that they would sink in and that everyone would understand the spirit, at least, of what I have been trying to say. Lord, we pray that each one of us would understand the tremendous responsibility we have to mirror in our marriages Christ in the church in submission and servant leadership in headship. Lord, please work that in me personally. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we want only to glorify your name and lift you up. One day, we will join you in that wedding feast. Until then, give us wisdom, give us insight in how to be loving and respectful spouses in headship and submission help us to understand your plan for the church in jesus name amen